The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into our beloved operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different programs and educational classes that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. In this week's episode, we are very excited to present a talk with an important member of the Metropolitan Opera staff. Donna Rasick plays a role in Met performances that you will actually never see or hear, or at least that's the goal. Her role is performed from a little black box at the front of the stage known as the prompter's box. In case you don't know what a prompter does, or if you've never even heard of a prompter, basically they are an assistant conductor of sorts and act as a valuable resource to all those that are on stage during a performance. From the prompter's box, Donna conducts, mouths words, gives directions, and sometimes she even sings. She does all of this to help Met performers be at their very best, especially when they have little or no rehearsal time. So if they have to jump in or if they're in a second cast, all of these are situations that call for a good collaboration between performers and prompters. She gave this talk to the Met Opera Guild tour guides as part of our professional development series for them so that we could all have a better idea of what her role entails, and we have captured her words to be shared with you, our listening audience. Please enjoy Donna Rasick's insights and experiences from inside the prompter's box. So, um, you know, prompting is not a very common thing, is it? Very few people do it. I was trained in Italy, which in my opinion, and I don't think I'm biased, I think that's, if you're going to learn it, that's where you learn it. And um, I started, I'll just give you a little of my background. Um, I grew up in Delaware, you know, and um, while I was still in high school, I started college because the my, my piano teacher was at that college, so I, you know, I started both. And after a little bit, I won, this, um, I won this state prize and at the same time decided I needed a bigger playing field. And I went to uh, Austria. To, the prize was uh, for this comp piano competition was to go to Salzburg and study at the Mozarteum. And then I came back and, to the States, and that fall I started at Manus. You know that conservatory, so it's one of... And, um, and, I, and I went as a pianist. But I had always been involved with theater from the time I was really little. And I sang and I played and I, I mean, I was just involved with theater. So when I came to New York to make money, and also just because it was fun, I started playing for singers and um, I was interested in languages and I had the, abil I had the opportunity to start playing with languages. Um, look at styles, and at the time, Manus didn't have any accompanying program or anything like that. Um, so it wasn't even, I didn't even consider it. Um, but I ended up working with lots of singers and taking voice lessons myself, because as I said, I'd like to sing. And it was a lot of fun. And so by the time I went for my master's, I thought, okay, 
this is really so much fun. And I realize I'm not meant to be in a practice room by myself. I'm too social. And I like to have my fingers in lots of pies. So I thought, OK, I'm going to work with singers and do chamber music. Well, as it turned out, I really am working with singers. And it is the perfect job for somebody like me because um, even though I have a great attention span, I have a lot of interests. So it gives me the opportunity to be involved in a form, as you well know, that involves you know, history and cultures and traditions and languages and mu different musical styles and um, very interesting people. Um, and the kinds of discussions that go around a production can, can be fascinating. Really, it's, it's such a rich atmosphere. And when I prepare, I use all those. I mean, I think most of us do. When we prepare an opera for the first time, or even if it's not the first time, frankly, when I go back to any piece of music, it gives me another chance to put on another layer or two, right? And so um, something like La Donna del Lago, when it comes from Sir Walter Scott, which is a little obtuse to start with in English, you can imagine by the time we get to Italian, it's like, oh my gosh, do I even speak this language? And I should just say that after I um, got my master's, I got a Fulbright grant to Italy. So I went and I studied in Italy for a couple of years. I studied with a, a very famous old maestro named Antonio Tonini. And he was, he worked with Fancarion and he worked with Collis, all these people that we know from, you know, way back. And um, he also was Pavarotti's coach. And when Pavarotti did the um, competition in Philly, if you remember that he did that, um, he would bring Tonini over to work with the singers. And that's how, I mean, you know, eventually I got his name and asked if I could audition for him, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got the Fulbright, went to Milan, worked on my Italian. And while I was there, um, this, I got another uh, grant. So I got to stay another year. I was being, doing very well with grants and things. Um, and that second year, someone uh, gave me the contact information for the prompter at La Scala, whose name was Dante Mazzola. And I called him and asked him if I could study. And he said, oh, of course. And he said, you know, let's make an appointment and bring a score or a couple of scores. So you know, I went across town or whatever. And I showed up as a, at his place. And we sat down. And he conducted me. And I was at the piano and singing. And one, a one hour lesson turned into two hours. And we were both excited. I was just thought, oh my gosh, I really found such a teacher. And he said, next week, I want you to come. I want you to conduct the beginning of La Boheme, and we will start. And he told me what he wanted me to do. I was so excited. And it turned out, after a few lessons, he, or a, however, a month or so, he said, listen, the way to really learn this is to be in the theater. So he spoke to Claudio Abado, who was the head of La Scala, and asked if I could go and watch rehearsals. And I had this amazing opportunity to um, sit next to um, all of them in rehearsal. <laughs> it was like the fifth wheel, you know. <laughs> there was the conductor, and there was the prompter, and there was me. Um, and watch how he worked with different people. And at La Scala at the time, I don't know if they still have it, because I know that their productions were they're no longer using the prompt box, from what I was just told today by one of the singer, Italian singers. Um, they had a double, double prompt box. And what I understand is that the idea was there would be the prompter for the singers and the, and the chorus. And there might be the director or an assistant director who would be busy giving stage because they probably hadn't rehearsed enough. I mean, it's so, the idea of that sounds so chaotic, but sort of so Italian, you know? <laughs> so I got this amazing opportunity to sit next to him and 
I don't know. I, maybe at this point in my life I could do this, but at the time I couldn't conceive of anybody being like this. He would go into a zone. It was I did not exist. It, he was in the space with the music and the conductor and whatever. And watching him work and having a chance to study with him was an amazing experience. He was musical in every gesture. He was clear. At one point I saw this poor woman had been flown in. Their Aida had gotten sick. And so this poor lady, I can't remember where she came from. You know, she was never seen again at La Scala, I'm sure. Because what happened was she skipped about three or four pages of music and an aria. At the time, Patenay was conducting, and he, um, what, he had uh, a photographic memory. And so he simply just said to the orchestra, measure whatever. They jumped. I watched Mazzola jump. And it all happened within seconds. I mean, it was choo 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 choo. I'm telling you, it was such an experience. So it was very, not only was it instructive, it was inspiring. Because this was, and the, and the thing that I loved, and the reason that I even was interested in studying prompting is because before I left New York, while I was still getting my master's, Joan Dorneman, who you probably know, right, from the Met, was giving classes for singers. And at that time, the, the Met actually allowed her to give the classes in one of the um, rehearsal spaces at the Met. And I happened to be one of the couple pianists chosen to, to play for the singers. And one evening, somebody was singing, and she was coaching them. She couldn't get what she wanted by speaking to them, so she began to conduct. And what she did with her hands, and how she shaped that phrase, and what she did with her face, went beyond language. Because music is beyond language. And so what she got from that singer, I went, OK. First of all, I went, wow. And then I went, I can do that. Because I have that you know, ability to transmit that kind of intention. And you know when you see something that you resonate with, and you know it's not an ego thing. It's just like an aha moment. That's what it was for me. So when I was in Italy and I started uh, studying prompting and I saw what could happen there, it became um, a real desire of mine to come back to the States and prompt. So when I got back to the States after you know, my couple of years away and I was back in New York, I was fortunate enough to be taken under the wing of Susan Webb, who was a prompter at the Met. She just passed away a few uh, months ago, actually. But um, at the time, she was at the Met, and um, I approached her, and I auditioned for her. And she said, sure, you can come. You will get, let's talk to the Met. They gave me permission to go and observe rehearsals at the Met. And so I did that while freelancing. You know, So when I wasn't out of town freelancing, I would go and watch. And um, again, the people, you know, the, the singers that come through are masters of their craft. And so are the people on music staff. I mean, really, from soup to nuts, the place is about quality. So it was a great education. And after watching, I guess somebody, in, you know, they must have thought, oh, she, she's serious about it. And the head of rehearsal at the time one day called me in and said, how would you like to prompt an opera next spring? And I started with La Boheme with Placido and Nello Santi. And I was so excited, of course. Can you imagine? <laughs> and it was really uh, such a great experience. Again, you know, it was, I, I was, it was the only opera that I got to do that season. And I started in the spring, I think it was 1988. And um, 
one of the things that happened on stage, you know, I said funny things happen on stage. At the beginning of the last act, when you have Marcello and Rodolfo, Paolo Coni was singing Marcello, and he and Placido switched lines. One of them sang the other's line, and they just switched. Well, the audience didn't know it happened so fast, but of course, my reaction, which is very normal, is I laughed. I mean, what are you going to do? It's just so darn funny. And they were laughing, and Nello Santi was laughing. And it was, you know, it's those funny things. So today, just as it just so happens, we have an orchestra. We had an orchestra rehearsal of Cavalleria, and um, you know, the the end of the of the duet between Turidu, the tenor, right, and Santuzza, the 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 uh, protagonist. She says to him, "Bada." Watch out. And he said, you know, nelira tua non mi curo. I don't give it, you know what, about your anger. However, the tenor said, bada. <laughs> <laughs> so he took her line, right? And it's one of those that they say. They don't even sing it, you know, bada. You know, nelira tua non mi curo. It's all this. And so when he took her line, of course she started laughing. You know, it's just that funny, they know each other's lines so well, right? That they can sing the whole darn opera. And today I was, we were in um, rehearsing, in, the, in one of the rehearsal rooms, we were rehearsing Pagliacci, we were rehearsing the second act, where they have the Commedia dell'arte, you know, so you have the, the clowns up there and all of that. Um, and again, it was quite funny, because I don't, have you seen this production? All right, so you know Tonio with the darn chicken, right? It looks like something from Sesame Street. And he has his hand and he's like, you know, doing all this stuff and the chicken starts to get scared. He puts it in his jacket. It's, it's just so darn cute. And we were having a great time with this. And again, the, what the troupe, these clowns are pretty amazing. One of them, um, there are three of them, but they have covers. So the covers we're rehearsing today, one of the guys, um, has worked with Cirque du Soleil, but when you talk to these people, their um, history is just as fascinating as any of the singers, to, for them to get to the Met and to hear what they do. This one guy was in France for a couple of years. He studied at clown school and mine, and he's been all over the place doing you know, street work. And of course, for him, being at the Met is such an amazing thing. It's so beautiful. But I'm looking over, and do you know Ambrogio? Um, who sang Falstaff. So he's, he's singing Cavalleria, but he and George are uh, covering each other. So he was in the Pagliacci. He was doing the Tonio. And I looked over, and the Cagno singing, one of the tragic parts. And I look over at Ambrogio, and Ambrogio has his eyes closed, mouthing the words, just listening. I mean, do you love that? You know, it's been a lot. He started at 10.30 this morning. There he is in the afternoon, just loving the music. It's just so beautiful. So my life, as far as what I do every day, I mean, you come and give tours. So occasionally, you know, you see us. Um, when we're downstairs or upstairs or wherever we are in a rehearsal room, the order is, if there's a conductor in the room, I sit next to the conductor, and I'm that conductor's assistant. And that goes through the whole show. I mean, I watch these rehearsals, um, and with my level of experience, et cetera, I, really all of us know who needs help where and when, usually. And you also get a feeling, I also get a feeling about, is this person a fiery type? Meaning that, um, will their tendency be, if they, if they make a mistake or they get scared, are they going to go faster? 
or are they sort of a slow responder? You know what I mean? And that informs the way I work with them because it's so individual and, and I can time it for them. So you know what I mean about when I give them a cue or how I cue them. And um, some people are very good with something rapid and some people need a lot of reassurance and if it's not too quick a tempo, you can give them that too. Um, so it's very, I really try to be aware of uh, what they need. And by following them through rehearsals, um, I get a lot of information. Well, we all do. And by the time, you know, information about their personality and, again, if they are having problems in spots, then we'll know that and, and the conductor will support them and I will too. Um, but by the time we get on stage, you know, I'm in a place that nobody can see me. And that's the time that I'm really free. Otherwise, if I did what I sometimes do when I'm sitting next to a conductor, it's distracting. Depending on the piece, I may do a lot of conducting. It really depends. Something like Die Frau und Schatten. Jurofsky, the last time we did it was with Jurofsky, and he really was shaping the orchestra, and he was doing so many colors and everything else, and he could do that knowing the stage was in, in my hands. He didn't have to do all those cues. But I could, and that was what made it so great. If they needed me, I'm there. If they don't need me, they ignore it. And if something goes wrong, which is, it happens, you know? You know, you get your dress caught in your shoe or something, right? And you get a little distracted, and you lose where you are, and it's something, time does not stop in music, you know? We're moving along. So it's very easy for someone to get off, just a little bit, but the next person in line, that train, it can derail the whole thing. So <clears throat> part of what happens in rehearsals is this building of trust. And uh, we can tell, I mean, both of us on either side of the footlights, we can tell pretty quickly is, um, if somebody knows what they're doing or not. It's extremely obvious. Um, you know, the other day we had a, what we call a zitzprobe. You know what that is when, when they're all... And, um, and my boss was sitting, like, right where you are, right? And somebody got off, and I held the next person and fixed it. And I thought, it's interesting that he got to see me do that, because usually when they have a score in front of them, that may not happen. But it's also the way that I or anybody who's good at this does it. It's that feeling of, don't sweat it. It's calm. Just give you a second. Or you've got to jump. And for instance, today, you know, at one point the soprano was on her back or whatever and she got, you know, she had to fall and she sort of lost or she, where she was. Or actually, I think on that set she couldn't hear. It's a very open set. And uh, usually the first time with orchestra, just about every singer will say to me, I can't hear the orchestra. And part of it is the acoustics are so new to them. And of course, there are lights, there, there's costume, all those things. And so they may depend on me more because they can't hear. And they'll say, am I in pitch even? They really have trouble hearing. So that's what happened to her. So she missed something. I started singing, and she just went along. And that's a very quick way sometimes for me to get somebody to do it. It's so instinctual. You know, somebody singing like happy birthday, and I'll start to sing happy, and we'll come in with birthday. It's just that, it's that simple, and it's that organic. I don't even think about it. Um, we had a one show, um, 
uh, Simon Bocanegra a number of years ago. And when a baritone came up to me last year and reminded me of it because he, he just thought it was so funny. We had Angela Gorgu, <coughs> who is <coughs> very dramatic, but not always on the same, you know, should I say plane as we are. You know, she gets so involved in what she's doing and she may sort of just lose track. So this was one of those moments and she was crossing the stage and she had a very important line and it was the chorus, cue. And she didn't sing it, so I sang it. Then the chorus came in. And so her colleagues said to her later, they said, well, you know, I really think you should give Donna part of your fee. <laughs> <laughs> so she gave me a box of chocolates. <laughs> but um, things like that happen all the time. You know, and the audience probably doesn't hear, most of the time will not hear me. My colleagues in the orchestra may. Um, but remember, I'm facing upstage and I have this box around me. So my voice goes that way. So if there's enough orchestration, they shouldn't hear me. Sometimes they will. We did a Billy Bud and a guy missed his line and of course there are no women on that ship. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a giveaway. And then one time <laughs> there was a, a magic flute and the three boys didn't come out. Well, I can only be one person at a time, but you know, I did, as be I did the best I could because it was with Papageno and he needed the guys. So I you know, sang as many of the boys as I could, the two lines. And, and again, the orchestra usually has comments. You know, oh, you sound just like a boy soprano. Thanks. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's really fun to see the way, the rapport in that theater. Because you have people who are so devoted um, have put so many years into what they're doing and they really all want to be perfect. That's what I find amazing. Really everybody. So we were doing, um, did you see the Flatermouse last month? Okay, so as we went on in that run, Chris Fitzgerald, who was the frosh, played more and more with the prompter. And so it became, by the time we got to the last performances, he, you know, he would fall off the stage and say, oh, you know, I broke the fourth wall. And then he'd turn around and he'd say, oh, there's a, a young girl, a little girl in that era, whatever he, whatever he said. Yeah, there's a, a little woman in there. And he says, you know, what's your name? And I said, you know, Donna. Madonna? You know. <laughs> here well we got the the orchestra they thought it was so funny so one of the performances they said how about if we say Madonna start screaming Madonna when he did it so they did in fact you know he says Chris says Madonna and the orchestra goes Madonna and he starts singing one of her songs I mean say so, you know this whole play and you know how fun that is for the orchestra? I mean, it's, you know, and, and he started playing with Jimmy, with, with James Levine, with Jimmy, and saying, you know, Maestro, do you know Donna? And Jimmy, oh, yeah, I know Donna. You know, and, and this whole thing, and, Maestro Jimmy, can you do, you know, and it was just really adorable. And then his last line, Chris's last line as he, as he went off the stage was, you know, put some clothes on, it's distracting. So I still, even today, first of all, I gave everybody carte blanche in the whole damn theater to say, Donna, put some clothes on. And today, believe it or not, I'm walking out of the cafeteria and some tech guy says, Donna, put some clothes on. I mean, it's really, you know, that kind of joke that goes around the theater. But I'll also say that, you know, um, it doesn't happen very long, very often. But sometimes the, the cover conductor, as you know, who's, who covers the, the principal conductor, right? One of their jobs is to give the orchestra notes. Um, besides the conductor, if they, if they see things. But 
I found on a couple of shows, people will come up to me and say, look, can I look at your score or I'll hear something. And I'll say, do you want to see what the, what the singer's doing here? So you know. Or if the sound, what's happening here? So, you know, if I hear that, it could be that somebody's substituting. But what I've always found, just to talk about quality, is one, the answer's yes. And they all are interested. They're so interested. They're interested in the singers. They're interested in the story. They're interested in whatever. Because they're preparing just like we are. And that's what I see in the theater in general, that it's just, you know, it's a quality place. And I think that's part of what my job is. It's really quality control. When we're in a performance, I'm the person with the score besides the conductor, right? I keep track of everything. So every singer before we start the show, I'm in their dressing room. What I've done in the last couple of years, because I found that if I just give them notes before a show, it might be too... Uh, there might not be enough time for them to think about it, and they might get nervous about thinking, oh, that's coming up, and I didn't hold it long enough, or whatever it was. So what I um, do now often is, if they're okay with it, I email them the notes. And that way, by the time I get to the theater that night, we can talk about it. And if some people need to go th through things at the piano, well, we have pianists backstage, but also, you know, I might do that too. You know, again, I'm... When I'm seeing all these different people backstage, I need to make sure I have enough time. If they want to do that, then they let me know, or I see that that's something that we need to do. But it's this whole idea of every performance is better. That's what we want. We want it all to be, right? To get better and better. And so whatever's necessary for that. And my job um, as the, you know, the assistant to the conductor um, is to look at all those things. And it might be something like rhythm, but it might actually be sound. It might be that this is a little flat or sharp, and I can show them that in the box. I can say, you know, you're a little flat, support that, and they will. And, you know, I'll let them know. Or if not, I won't, I'm not gonna, we don't hold on to things. That's the other thing. You know, if somebody makes a mistake, okay, they make a mistake. But, and you have to stay in the present moment because, frankly, you look back at what you just did, you're going to mess the next thing up. And I remember one of the singers years ago, we were doing Aida. She, at the dress rehearsal, all of a sudden had a problem with a high C. And it became a thing for her. And I could tell when we got to opening night, three pages before we got to that note, I could th see that things were starting to get rocky. And that's because her mind was on that. We were, I mean, she was able to solve it. But, you know, it's one of those things about how do we, everybody's going to make a mistake, so what? You know, we're human. And most of the time, the audience won't even know. It's so quick. And it may be a mistake, like, they substitute a word. And that can be actually funny, do you know? You know, if you know the language, and it's a, it's a, it's a good substitution, if you know what I mean. But... Um, it's just very important to have that support. And that's what I think is the most important part of my job. And um, actually, Chris Fitzgerald said to me on our closing night of, of um, Flater Mouse, and I really hold it close to my heart, he said, you know, you're the heart of the Met. And I thought, well, you couldn't give me a better compliment than that. Because what he meant was, you know, um, you're here before every, you know, well, he goes in the last act. So, you know, I'd be there in the intermission between second and third acts and, and go talk to him and 
just whatever. And it's not that I had notes for him, for heaven's sake. He's an actor. But, but I did check in and, and did talk to him. And um, uh, that's very important because the performers need that kind of feedback. They need other ears. And they also need to trust the feedback. So that doesn't, you know, if, if someone says to me, how do I sound? And they sound like they're struggling. I'm not going to lie. Because then what good am I? I may not say it sounds like you're struggling. Just might say it sounds like it's a hard night. And it can be. You know, people will, will be sick. And they'll, I'll go backstage and they'll say, how does it sound? And I might say, listen, I'm three feet away from you. I can tell. I know your voice. And I can hear it in your voice. But I don't think they can hear. On the other hand, I've said the opposite. You know, and, 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 my, and I'm not the only person, but don't think that I had this kind of power because there are administrators too. But if it comes to someone saying, I've got to get, you know, get my cover in because I'm sick, what I say to them is, how do you feel? Because it's your voice and you need to take care of yourself. We can get somebody else in. But what we don't want is somebody to have a permanent issue because they sang on chords that really shouldn't be getting a rest, right? So um, generally, we rehearse seven days a week. I'm sorry, six days a week, pardon me. We have rehearsed seven. We don't want that to start, but we have rehearsed <laughs> seven. But that's really an awful thing, because you really don't get a break, and it's exhausting. But six days a week, usually, as you know, 10.30 to 5.30, right? Um, and for me, preferably, if, I have a, uh, if I'm juggling a couple of operas, Preferably, I get the afternoon off if I have I'm working, you know, so I have a few hours to take a nap and, and shift and, and be fresh. Because really, in a performance, I feel like I've got to be laser, you know, laser-like. My focus, the way I tune into the singers. And you know, as I said in that short clip, um, there's a sort of telepathy involved. And it, this is part of the thing about rehearsing with someone or getting to know them over years. Sometimes, you know, I won't have seen someone for a few years, but we've worked on something else, and it's old home week. You know, I, we know each other. They know they can trust me. That's, that's really part of it. Whenever I meet someone new, which is all the time, part of their process is, hey, how good is she? And if she tells me to jump, am I going to jump? Because, frankly, that's what I have to do sometimes. And so... If they stop and say, no, I don't think so, well, you know what, that's on them. But if they trust me, then we'll, you know, we'll line up if there's been something that's happened. So, um, and trust, you know, Fabio Luisi said something really beautiful a couple of years ago. We were talking about prompters. He had a, there was a, a newspaper, uh, a journalist, who, was con who came to talk to me about prompting. And he really, he was not a musician. He really didn't know anything. And so he, and Fabio was in the theater. We were working on a, I can't remember, even remember what opera, but Fabio said, you know, it's really important that I trust the prompter. And I hadn't thought about it in those terms. But you know when I say sometimes I'm conducting from the box? I'm supporting what the conductor's doing. I'm supporting their intention. And the reason I say that is because there might be a slight disagreement. The singer might want a faster temper and might, or just might be that kind of personality that wants to rush. And my job is to be the monkey in the middle and say, okay, so 
you know, let's give them a little time to, to discuss this, unless I'm really sure that the singer's not right. You know, for, for the conductor to adjust or not adjust, but if I get a feeling that the conductor know is very clear about what they want, and the singer's not with them, then guess what? I'm very firm about, you know, what's being asked here. Because we have one boss in that situation, and that person has lots of people to, to you know, work with. And the chorus, you know, the chorus is so terrific. Oh my gosh, what musicians they are, you know. And again, they want to be the best. So if they have a new opera, and it's, you know, odd text, I will prompt them a lot. I'll give them a lot of words. And then the idea, and I look. I'm always looking to say, mm, OK, that person over there, you know, I, I can see if they're not. Because I'm mouthing the words. That's the other thing that I do. I mouth the words so if somebody looks down at me, they know exactly where they are. And, um, and that helps them. They don't have to hear it. In fact, they, I, through singing, a lot of times you can't hear what somebody's saying. So, um, and, but by the time we get to opening night, the idea is we're off book. And that's especially important right now because we're, we're using Sirius on opening night, right? So over my time at the Met, um, between radio and HD, I've gotten quieter and quieter. <laughs> Except for here, you know. But um, basically, I'm part of quality control, right? So I follow each, each person. And I'm their cheerleader, too. You know, it's really nice to know, boy, if you sang that the best you've ever sung it, it's really nice for someone to come back in the intermission and say, whoo, that was amazing. Because they hear the audience, but to get that personal touch is so important. I think that's what Chris meant about, you know, the heart of the Met, that it's a big place. And there are lots of things going on. You're one of a number of shows, right? And so it's important that whatever team is on that show you know, we bond and we are very much there to support, support them. And that goes for the directors and the music staff. I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a crew over there, I have to say, very respectfully. You know, very committed. P you know, people will come in. It's really fun. We did, I was doing Macbeth last year. And um, so the, the director of Macbeth ha had done many Macbeths, but for theater, not for opera, you know. And so... But he was, this was a revival, and, and he was there. But what was really fun was two people bringing in information about, you know, well, you know, in, in this year, the Scottish king was whatever. And if you just look down this whole, you know, chronology here, you'll see that so-and-so was married to so-and-so. And, you know, the kinds of stuff that people bring in because they're so interested. And it's not that you'll ever see this on the stage, but it adds to the depth of the of the preparation and in the room. So I'll tell you a story right now. So Roberto Alagna comes in, and, uh, and he's singing Kanyo right now. Beautifully, I might add. So he comes in the first day, and you know, the, the last line of Pagliacci is La Commedia Finita. And when they did it last year, they and they have done this, this is not the first time, they gave it to Tonio. And Roberto com comes in, he says, oh, no, 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 that's my line. That is my line, because the whole point of this opera is this man is expected to play a clown. His life is a tragedy, and he's torn between these two extremes. And so he has this score, 
He says, I have Leon Cavallo's score. Well, son of a gun, didn't he have it? With, you know, Leon Cavallo's signature in the front, dedicated to his parents. How about that for neat, right? And he says, so listen, 70 years ago, they wanted to um, renew the patent. But in order to renew the patent, they had to make some changes in the score. So there were several things they just changed here, there, and whatever. He says, but that's not what was wanted at first. So Roberto will be saying that last line. And speaking of him, talking about fun in rehearsal, right? So you know at the end of the opera, he kills his wife, right? And then he kills her lover. So in this production, there is a, um, a raised stage, right, where they do the commedia. And then there's the audience, which is what? Two and a half feet or so down. So Roberta gets there, and, and so the, the Silvio, who's the, the lover, right, the baritone, he's netta, and he goes running toward the stage because she's laying there dying or dead, whoever knows what. And Roberto jumps off the platform, you know, and goes after him. Oh, we're hysterical. Because it's just, you know, he's so athletic. And it's like, that guy's not getting away. He's, you know, he didn't even have a chance to get close to Nedda, for heaven's sake. He was down. So then they started working with different ways to stage this. And I will tell you, were we entertained? It was, you know, should you stab him from the front? Should you stab him from the side? Should, I mean, it was, but, and, and at one point, they're goofing around, and he pulls the, the Silvio around, and he slices him across the throat. That, so that, obviously, that was jettisoned. But in the meantime, the rest of us are finding that he has a lot of skill in killing people. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally, if you go, if you watch the dress, he finally, they finally decided that Silvio's going to run on a diagonal. He's going to grab him turn him around, stab in the back, you know, arch his back as he, get, as he dies. But um, there are fun things like that that happen in rehearsal. And you get to see such a variety of skills, like the fight masters. I don't know if you've ha ever had a chance to talk to any of them. But years ago, B.H. Barry used to do a lot of the fights. And he's quite a special fellow. And he, he um, would say, listen, you know, I, I come in and I talk to the director, and I find out what's the story. What's the storyline? And then we choreograph that fight around the story. And, he's, and he said, you know, I look at a cast, and I see what are they physically capable of. So we had two enormous guys doing Mahogany many years ago. I mean, big. And they weren't going to be moving very fast. And so I said to BH, what are you going to do with them? Oh, she says, right, we're going to use what they do well. He says, they're going to use their weight against each other. Fascinating, right? But, and the other thing is, you know, talking to some of these people, you know, they'll say, well, they're, yeah, they're period weapons. They're from, you know, 17th century, whatever. But all these details, which the audience isn't going to know unless somebody tells them. But if you're in the rehearsal room, you have a very good chance of, of finding out. And it's fascinating to, to, you know, watch that process. It's just, so it makes my job very interesting. And then you add all the people that are coming from different countries. You know, the languages, the cultures, whatever. Today, Ambrogio said to me, you know, until the 1960s, there was a law, especially in South Italy, that, you know, if someone, um, if a woman cuckolded his, her husband, the husband was allowed to kill the rival. I said, what about the wife? He says, he was allowed to kill the wife, too. <laughs> he, says, he said, fortunately, we've changed that. But, you know, that's, I mean, that's not that long ago, the 60s, right? 
So, I mean, that kind of, um, and those kinds of discussions just happen because people are um, very, very interested in what they do and, and very committed and they, and they want to talk about it and they want to share it. So does that give you an idea? Yeah. After Donna's talk, we opened up the floor for some questions from our audience of tour guides and staff. So because some of the questions are difficult to hear in the recording, I am going to play the role of the audience and then we'll have Donna's replies. So all of the questions you're about to hear were from our group of tour guides and staff that had gathered for this event. So here we go. What is it like prompting for a run of an opera when the casts are changing regularly? Well, one, it's a lot of rehearsals. <laughs> and it's inevitable that with the way things go is that the first cast gets the most, which is inevitable. Because usually when we have those cast changes, um, it might be one person in a, in a group of, I don't know, six. Or it might be two people in a group of six. So some of them have already worked in. Um, I will say this. Every time we get a, a person up there, it's sort of like having a cover go in. They haven't been on that set with the costumes, with the lights, with the orchestra. And it's like a stage audition, a very long stage audition. And, um, you know, I haven't talked about nerves, but there's a great, here's a great example of nerves. And that's part of what I work with. How to make someone, how to help them feel as comfortable as possible in the moment and give them feedback in the moment about how well they're doing, right? Or at least, um, if, it's, if that's not the case, which I hope it isn't, but if that's not the case, at least give them, you know, that smiles and support and go for it. And sometimes, um, and it's actually very interesting, you know, I, I did a run of Tosca's this uh, fall, which was frankly endless because we had a, we had a, I don't know, four Toscas and a few tenors, whatever. But certainly what I noticed was the first performance, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how prepared, no matter what kind of career the person had, that first performance was nerve-wracking for them. You know, and they could, the audience probably just thought, oh, great. But, you know, I'm really close, so I can see if somebody's hands shaking or I can see what they do, because everybody reacts differently to nerves. Some people get a little more frantic. Some people get more cautious, you know. Um, so you just, what, I'm tr what I try to do is, in that moment, just support whatever they need. Then by the second performance, very different. That was their dress rehearsal. Not that the audience is going to know that, but as I said, I'm really close. And the other part of my job that, um, I'm, I, I don't say I take for granted, I don't, but is the sort of psychological part. You know, when you go to someone and to give them notes, to tell them, hey, this was not right, or this pitch, whatever it is, and think about the people that I get to work with. I mean, I get to work with the gamut, but, I, but when I work with Plasto, or I work with, used to, you know, with Pavarotti or whatever, these are big stars. I'm not sure how many people go and say, you know, <laughs> in the second act. Um, but I have found, and I remember one soprano said to me, no one ever gives me notes. And I said to her, well, I am. And the second time I went to her, she welcomed them. 
And I thought, interesting. So I, I, wherever they're working in the world, maybe they don't get that. But then, you know, that's, I see that as part of my job. I mean, I am there with them every second of that performance. So who else? Unless you have the conductor. We're both of us. But there's just nothing like being really on the spot with them. And also knowing what may be uncomfortable, um, you know, for them. And, and discussing it, if, if it's appropriate. To say, look, I, I see that this is not comfortable. Do you want a different tempo? Do you want, you know, to talk about possibilities and then communicate that to the conductor because I'm in touch with the conductors too. Sometimes I am the middle person for both because the conductors can be busy or out of town or whatever and I may write them notes and say, I think so-and-so needs a different, I will check with them, but I think they need a different tempo here or whatever it is. Or they're going to take a breath. They've decided they're going to take a breath here, you know, and so, uh, and that may change what the conductor's doing because that means the conductor's got to show the orchestra that you know that they're breathing there. It just has a little bit of a luft, you know, before we move. If you are the prompter for a particular opera, will you be on that one opera for the entire season, or do you rotate through different operas as the season goes along? Well, it depends. It's, it worked, you know, because sometimes they split operas, like somebody else did Otello earlier in the season, Chow, and, and I'll do it in spring. So, but um, there's certain things you wouldn't split. If it's a hard piece or if it's a world premiere, you're doing them all. But if it's something more standard and it's split, um, time-wise, and that's a totally different cast. Yeah, I mean, you know, then it just, you know, because there, there, there are enough of us that can, can do that. How do you know when singers are in trouble? Oh, well, sometimes, well, sometimes it's very obvious because I'm right there. All they have to do is give me a look, you know. <laughs> it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be that dramatic, but in fact, it can be. Um, or they'll just look at me. They'll just give me a look and I'll think, okay, you've got it. You know, they'll do it like maybe two beats before they come in. It's like, and even, it's not panicked. Even in the, the rehearsal today when we were working, I could see, you know, the tenor's eyes slide over and it's like, okay, I know you need this cue. You've got it. You know, I'm not sure where I am. Okay, there it is. That kind of thing. Um, and the art of it is, is to know when to stay out of the way. So one of the things I learned from Levine is truly, I mean, I feel that he's been a mentor in my life. And there's, it's not an exaggeration to say that he's a genius. It really is not. He taught me many things. One he taught me was economy of movement. Now, I'm not, still not always so good in that. Sometimes I get excited and they're going to get everything, darn it. But, but he did show me, especially when he was physically, you know, in, in uh, a different period, that one little, you know, looking it up in the monitor, you know, which is one thing. But we've, we've shared a few things together. And one of the things, and I reminded him, because we were rehearsing Flatermouse, and we were in the room um, a lot in um, December, rehearsing in November. One time I said to him, because I don't think he remembered, I said, you know, Jimmy, early on you said, everybody's trying to do their best. Never forget that. Don't judge. People aren't up there trying to mess up. 
they're not trying to do the, you know, not hit that note or whatever. They're giving you everything you can, they can. And when you acknowledge that and you support them, you know, you get their best. And I think he's always been brilliant at that. You know, brilliant at that in such a um, almost a, a difficult way to define because part of it is just feeling where the singer is. So I'm very fortunate to have all those years with him, frankly. I believe once in a performance of Barber of Seville, you sang for almost 10 minutes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we had a, Susan, Suzanne Menser had a, of uh, course we didn't know what happened at the time, she looked at me and she, it was one, again, talk about looks. And I thought, what's wrong? But she, she couldn't sing. Well, she had a paralyzed vocal cord. Fortunately, that's in my repertoire, and it's in my, it was in my vocal range. So I sang until the cover, first of all, the cover was side stage for a while, and then she finally, but it was the whole, it was the uh, finale in the first act, so they had to go get her, so until we got her, I got to do it. Did she give you chocolates? No, I guess I should write to Suzanne and say, where are the chocolates? You said that you are always mouthing the words, but what do you do if it is a quartet or a quintet? How do you know which words are most important to mouth if all the different vocal parts are singing different things? That's really tricky. <laughs> of course, leave it to you to ask that question. You know, um, when it, there's an ensemble, again, from rehearsal, but also from study, I know what people need. So um, usually there are certain entrances that are more difficult than others. And once they get started, they should be okay for a while. If not, I'll jump to them. And that's when I may sing. You know, if I can't get them, and how to get their attention when they're off and they're convinced that they're right, you know, I might do that. Some people are like, which I hate. Oh, I was going to ask you about it. I hate that. It sounds like a, you're calling a dog or something. So I'll do that, or I'll, you know, if you, you can usually see something like this out of the, or if I get really adamant and they're not listening, I'll just, I'll put my hand down on the stage and bam, bam. I've not done that very often, but if people are really out and it's a group like the chorus and they cannot see, I'm hoping they can just feel it or hear it. Um, and it's been very rare that I've ever done that, but I think it, it was like in extremis, you know, I was driven to it. What about with all the microphones in the broadcasts? Well, I mean, I'm obviously going to be um, cognizant of that. I'm not going to be so, you know, profligate just to, to do it. I, what I found out, you know, our first HD was the first emperor, which, as you recall, was in English. And I was on that with Placido, and famous Placido. Does he remember words? And oh my god, we worked on his English. Oh, that Spanish accent, he's so cute. But try, you know, honestly. So he needed the, he needed the words. And he needed the words past the first performance, and we're doing the HD. And I got, it's the only time in my life I've gotten a letter backstage, and they said, I don't know why, you, you know, you ruined the performance. Well, you know what, the thing is, it's English, it's your native language. You hear it differently than if I was prompting in another language. It was very, that's very difficult. <laughs> but that's, that's the new reality, isn't it? So um, all of us have had to adjust. So that was a wake-up call. What about operas or companies that don't use a prompter at all? Well, I'll tell you, um, besides the fact that I'm biased, what I see is this. I think if you have one cast and you have enough rehearsal, these guys are great. And probably 90% of the time it's great. 
But when I've been in the hall and I've seen there's no prompter, and I and Chris, I'm used to listening with eagle ears, right? Eagles have ears, but whatever. And if something's not quite lined up, I know that within, you know, an eighth note or a quarter note, I'm going to have it lined up. And if I've got to wait for them for another measure or two measures, it bothers me. I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake. But the the reality is that directors and the visual is. Um, more and more important in people's lives. I mean, you see what's happening with computers. People are visual, 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 to the exclusion of listening. And, um, and so directors are calling the shots more and more. And so for them, a bump in the stage can be a problem. But as far as quality control, I think you're doing seven shows a week and you have covers going in, you should have somebody right there for them. We're a repertory house. If we were not, and we were doing six shows a year, and you were rehearsing for five weeks or whatever, yes, you're solid. You have the conductor. The conductor can take care of it for sure. I, you know, I'm, but what we do and having people, you know, opening night of Flatermouse, we had somebody go in. The third show or whatever, we had somebody else go in. They had not been on that stage doing that, and it's a big deal. And... Isn't it normal if you're nervous like that that you might drop a line? Or again, you know, you just having that help of someone saying, listen, you're far enough away that it's not, you can't follow the conductor here. There's a time lag. You're so far away. Follow me because I'm going to conduct a little bit ahead of the conductor. And then you're going to line up with the orchestra. It's those kinds of things. Otherwise, you need rehearsal to figure that out. You really do. With a couple of rehearsals, you can, or a few times, you can figure out, oh, yeah, I can't follow the conductor because, in fact, I'm getting the sound and his, and his beat it all, is all late because I'm so far away. So, but, you know, I can cut the, the time on that kind of thing, especially somebody going in. I think that's the big reason. But besides quality control, like that soprano says, no, whatever gives me notes. Well, guess what? You're at the Met. And we like it perfect. And we want you to be the best you can be. That's the idea. We want everybody to be the best they can be and that the audience gets the best that they can get. Does the singer watch the conductor and the prompter at the same time? They can because I'm in, the, in their line of vision. And this is the whole thing about um, sometimes less is more. You know, it, it, what do they need and, and what can I add or, or you know, would I detract? So it's that... That's constantly, um, you get that with experience, right? If I see that the conductor's very clear, eyes are to stage, then, you know, and I see that the community, I stay out of it. But if I see he's, you know, talking to the first violins and his, you know, and he's trying to get something from them, I make sure that I'm right there for them. What is the worst thing that has happened to you in a performance? The worst thing that happened, oh my gosh, I can tell you what the worst thing was. I was in a Valkyrie um, performance, and we had a guy go in, I think for one performance, and he skipped to another part of the opera, I mean a, really another act. And I couldn't, whatever I did, I couldn't get him to change. And I saw Jimmy in the monitor, and I could just see him thinking, Donna, Donna, you know. And this guy's like off and like whatever. I never, I mean, I thought to myself, oh God, why did that not work? Well, I found out that he was deaf in one ear. Well, he came back years later to do, and he was doing a dress rehearsal. This time it was with Mazel. And I, this, we had rehearsed, and I said, do you remember that? He's, oh, yeah, I, you know, he, he's, I remember that. Boy, do I remember that, I've got to tell you. 
I, I thought I was going to lose my job. That's how scary it was for me. Comes back for this dress rehearsal and he said to me that he's up in age and he's about to retire. He says, I'm losing, and this is really tragic, I'm losing my hearing in the other ear. So I said, okay. I said, so look. I said, you have to keep in contact with me because I know you're not going to hear it. He said, okay. Right. Well, I've got to tell you, that was such because, you know, I thought to myself, in a way, it was a great way to, to end that circle because, yes, I was, you would have heard me. I was quite loud at that dress <laughs> rehearsal, and the conductor was so grateful. And so was this guy. He got through it, but he really was, he was unfortunately losing his hearing, and he could not hear important cues. So that was, the, that was the worst thing that ever happened. What's funny about it is, right after that, we went to Japan with Valkyrie, and um, they have different arrangements of prompt box. One of them was like you had to climb like two flights of a, of a ladder. You know, you had to climb. I mean, it was just really funny. And then they closed this trap door underneath you. It was hysterical. But anyway, so we're doing this rehearsal. And um, was it Crystal Ludwig? It might have been Crystal Ludwig was doing Fricka. She got off. I can't remember if it was her or Hanna Schwartz, but whatever. Whoever was up on stage, they got off. And they weren't paying attention. And I thought, and I had Jimmy in the pit. This is a rehearsal anyway. I thought, I can't let this happen. I started climbing up on stage. <laughs> she looked at me and she went, ah, there I am. <laughs> I wasn't going to happen to get on my watch. Just so funny. And your title is assistant conductor? conductor? I'm an assistant conductor. So if sometimes I'll be conducting the rehearsal. If the cover conductor or whatever's not there, I did a lot of the Flater Mouse con because. Um, rehearsals at one point because Jimmy wasn't downstairs in time or was had something else and then the cover conductor was out of town doing something else so you know so I had the chance to do it you know and it's also funny to be doing it when your boss comes rolling in says, I'll take over <laughs> who's my boss James Levine <laughs> what Oh, you mean, you mean in that particular? Oh, John Fisher's the head of um, the music staff now. Yeah, so that's when we, I was talking about the Zitz Proba. That was John sitting there. He was very hands-on, quite wonderful. Again, there's a person who will you know, work with different people and really wants to make sure that they feel supported and that he's, he's taking care of them. What is a good summary of a prompter's role, kind of in a nutshell, in one or two sentences? It's a great question. I would say that, um, first of all, the assistant conductor in, in, every, in every way that, you know, is possible, and that they are there for the singers during the performance, that they do everything from conduct, they might give staging cues, that's rare, but it has happened, um, certainly sing, uh, you know, mouth words, anything that that person needs, but even beyond, or with all of that, is that feeling of support about, you know, a smile goes a long way. And so does mirroring the emotion. So when somebody is dying or they're, they're in terrible torment, whether it's butterfly or whatever, I'm not smiling. You know, and sometimes I have tears running down my face. Is it gratifying when a performer reaches down to shake your hand at the end of a performance? Yes, it's very sweet. You know, and Chris, um, it was very funny, the last Flater Mouse, he came down to kiss me. So I popped out of the box and gave him the kiss. And then he, like, dove his head into the box, you know, to, for a laugh. But it's just very sweet when they do that. Because it's not, it's not, uh, my, I get thanks, but it's backstage, you know. 
that's just very sweet when somebody does something like that. Hmm? Anyway, okay. All right, nice to meet you. I want to thank Donna so much for sharing her experiences with us and also with you, our listeners. I know that when I was at this event in person, I found it absolutely fascinating. I could not hear enough about Donna's day-to-day -day work at the Met and also all the different elements and important roles that she plays in an opera performance. If you liked this or any of the other episodes that we have on our podcast, I hope you'll leave us a review in iTunes. We always love hearing from you. We love knowing what you love. And we also love hearing what kinds of things you would like to learn more about. Also, if you would like to receive automatic downloads of new episodes whenever they are released, remember to subscribe to the podcast, and this will make sure that you get the episodes as quickly as possible. I think that's all for today. So with that, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and I look forward to being back with you again next week.